If you think it's warm in here now, it's going to get hotter. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is we're looking at Jesus' manual for harvesting souls. I think most of us have probably heard of at least different uh, programs. We've been a Christian for very long. All years back, there was the evangelism explosion curriculum. There was the discipleship evangelism curriculum. More recently, uh, the Way of the Masters series. And these are great, great programs designed to help people share the gospel and disciple people, um, to bring them into the kingdom, to equip them for different kinds of circumstances, to help them understand where people are at and and how to bring them to Christ. And many have been brought to Christ by those trained in these programs. But the fact is that sometimes programs like that can actually be kind of a hindrance because people start to try and learn them and it's daunting. You have to memorize all these verses and now when you do this, make sure you say this. And if they say that, you say this and you go out there and you're just kind of terrified that you might you know, make a mistake. And so some people never say anything because they just think, I I just can't get all this information straight in my head, and I don't think I can share the gospel. Well, you can. You can. Be encouraged. You can learn what you need to learn in order to share the gospel with the lost. And if it seems difficult to learn how to share the gospel, it's because it is. It's like reading your Bible or praying that's a pretty easy task, those two things, isn't it? No. Um, the concept is easy. The idea is easy. But you know how easy it is to watch TV or to read your favorite magazine or to read the newspaper. Do you ever struggle trying to read the newspaper? You know, you're, you're trying to read the newspaper and your mind's wandering. No, it never happens. But what happens when you read the Bible? It's like, you know, everything you could possibly think of but God and what's in that passage is running through your mind. The same thing with prayer. Why is that? Because there is a spiritual battle going on and Satan doesn't want you to learn how to share the gospel. He doesn't want you reading your Bible. He doesn't want you praying. Those things are the things that do the most damage to his kingdom. And so it is war, you know, to the knife um, when you begin to try and learn how to share the gospel. And this is why the Christian life is called a battle, a war, a spiritual conflict is raging behind the scenes. But when you learn how to share the gospel, you become a formidable weapon if you open your mouth. Because when you utter the gospel, you utter the very power of God for all those who believe. It is God's weapon. To bring anybody who comes into the kingdom into the kingdom. And so be encouraged about that. And be encouraged that God has often used less than stellar gospel presentations. I mean, some of you have come to Christ through some very wimpy gospel presentations. I I talked to somebody who came to Christ when they heard somebody teach on the verse, Behold the Bohemoth. It just struck them that this God is the one who made dinosaurs. And from that, they, they, it's just like everything that God is the creator. And 
I need to be saved through behold the behemoth. I mean, think about the the intricate gospel presentation given to the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he was. You can remember that. It's not too complex. Class is over. Many have come to Christ through tracts and Gideon Bibles and just billboards and all kinds of odd pieces and scraps of gospel data spread around. It's been my experience that the fear of being rejected, the fear of persecution, the fear of losing relationships, of being thought of as some sort of uh, religious fanatic or Jesus freak is the real problem. I don't think it's, it's that people can't tell somebody, you know, this is what Jesus did. He's the son of God who lived a perfect life, died on the cross with the sins of men, was buried and rose again on the third day. And if you believe in him, you have the free gift of eternal life. I mean, that's not all that complex. And you may not say it all that smooth and you may be fearful that you're going to misquote a verse. You always misquote a verse because the Bible is written in Hebrew, Greek and Aramaic. <laughs> I think we only have a few Hebrew and Aramaic speakers here. But most people don't share the gospel because of fear. You know, they, they're, they're thinking, well, what if I talk to the atheists and they, 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 you know, they have a slick argument or the evolutionists or what if they bring up the natives in Africa? I don't even know any of them. <laughs> but the essence of the gospel never leaves their mouth. And that's the problem. Because God is more than willing to use less than perfect gospel presentations, but he can't use silence. And so as we come to Luke this morning, what we're going to learn from Jesus is his methodology for reaching the lost. It's kind of his manual for harvesting souls. And this is the method that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. And what's great about it is you don't need to quote verses. You just need to tell people the truth. And we begin to look in Luke, seeing that Jesus is now sending out the 70. He's sending out the 70 to go out and proclaim the kingdom, to preach the gospel. He's done that with the 12, the beginning of Luke 9. Now he's doing it with the 70, or if you have the NIV, the 72. There's an ancient manuscript, and they don't know whether it's 70 or 72. Most of them have 70, I think. But... Here we have Jesus sending out the 70 and he kind of describes the 70's charge, at least Luke does, and then kind of a threatening of judgment on those who don't repent and then they're actually returning and their comments and and they're rejoicing and so we kind of have this series from verses 1 through 25 in the whole account of the 70, the sending of the 70. And we're looking at the first 12 verses, which this is the charge part, where Jesus is kind of getting them ready to go out. And Jesus' approach is kind of a two-flanked approach. First, he empowers the 70 to to go out, heal the sick, and proclaim the Gospels in all the cities that he is going to go to. He then will come back in a second wave, and he and the uh, disciples will then preach the Gospel again. 
They will go forth and they will preach the gospel a second time, harvesting more who didn't repent the first time. And so please follow along as I read Luke 10, 1 through 12. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give to you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those who in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Well, as we learned last week, in our little alliteration, some people said, I've never heard that word. That is when you make all the points of the outline start either with the same letter or you spell out some cute little word. So we are looking at 12 perfect points proposed in this pericope that we can put into practice for proselytizing pagans. And we have examined the first six steps of Jesus' manual for harvesting stole. One, pursue God's purpose in saving you, which is to evangelize the lost. Secondly, partner with others in ministry. Third, plan to share the gospel with people more than once. Four, pray for more laborers to be sent into the harvest. Five, prepare to be persecuted. And six, place your trust in Christ to provide for you as you minister to others. Now we come to the seventh step in Jesus' manual for harvesting souls. Pass by some to reach greater numbers. Look at the middle of verse four. Jesus has just told them not to take any extra provisions because he wants them to trust in God's providence to provide for them through those they attempt to evangelize and then in the middle of verse 4 we read and greet no one along the way or on the way now why would he say that i mean think about that doesn't that seem kind of strange to you i mean after all he's sending them out to talk to people about the gospel so why would he say don't talk to people about the gospel as you go out to talk to people about the gospel is that what he's saying no no that's not what he's saying it's don't greet anyone on the way on the way to what He's sending them to cities and towns and villages where he himself is going to come with the 12. Now, if you've never been to uh, the East and, and experienced the hospitality there, it can be a very long process. You know, you show up and you say, hi, my name's Jack. Come into my house. Come into my house. Well, I'm really supposed to be come, 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 come. And they grab you by the arm and they sit you down. Let me make some coffee. And man, they pour you some coffee that you could bounce a horseshoe off of. 
And then you're trying to drink it and your heart's throbbing and you're talking, man. You've, you're ready to talk now. And they're, they're, they want to just talk and tell me about your family. Tell me why you're here. Tell me about your journey. You know, I mean, they want to know everything and they tell you and you ask them and two or three hours later, bless you, bless you. And off you go. Yeah, that's just normal how it is there. And you have those people come over there here and, you know, they say, how come people say to you, hi, how are you doing? And then walk away. Why don't they talk? I mean, they see Americans as very cold and selfish. Well, so Jesus is talking to them about this kind of thing. He says, I want you to go from city to city. And as you go from city to city, you're going to encounter all these travelers and all these people and all these farmers. And they're going to come, come, come. And you're going to say, sorry. You're actually going to have to be rude to them. You're going to have to go against cultural custom. Because it's urgent. Remember we learned when it said, and he sent out 70, that word sent out means to send out with urgency or haste. Why? Because Jesus is going to die. Jesus is coming along. Jesus wanted them to do this, to to do the first wave of evangelism because he's going to come along and then he's going to die. And this is going to be their first and maybe their only chance to hear the gospel twice in close proximity and actually see miracles and see the Messiah himself. And so it's urgent business. They're just going to have to go by. Now, there's a principle here. Jesus is not saying, you know, just don't even acknowledge anybody. But he's just saying, don't engage in the typical long, drawn out, chit chat, lollygagging, how's the weather? How about them Mets type of discussion? He's saying, no, don't be going about greeting everybody. Don't get bogged down and shooting the breeze and having long conversations about things that don't matter. Get to the city, get to the town, get to the village where I'm sending you and preach the gospel, heal the sick, and then move on. And the principle here is sometimes you have to pass up some, some good ministry opportunities to reach greater numbers. I'm telling you, you could talk to any pastor and they can tell you exactly how this is. You know, you want to help everybody who asks. You just do. You know, you've got, okay, I've got four hours. I've got to do my my sermon. Because I couldn't do it the day before because 15 other people interrupted me. And now it's Friday. And I haven't even opened my Bible. You're kind of a little frantic at somebody... Um, secretary, somebody's on the phone and they need to talk to you. Oh, can we do it? They'd say it as kind of emergency. Mm. Okay. Um, hi. <laughs> what can I do for you? And then 45 minutes later, it's okay. I'll praise God. And yes, come in next week and you'll, this problem will still be there and we can deal with it then. Hang up. And all of a sudden, somebody, somebody's outside here and they were wondering if they could just stop in. It's like, no. I mean, you just have to get to the place where sometimes you just say no. Why? Is it because, you know, I don't want to talk to those people? No, I love talking to people. I mean, the reason I had to change my email address and hide it from everybody, I had the whole world wanting to chat with me. Everyone to fix my doctrine and fix my theology. And, you know, I became like the online answer man to college students around the world. 
There were times when I would sit at my computer and I can type about 80 words a minute. And so I would just sit down there and I'd be pounding down one and they would just keep coming in. You know, New York, Spain, Philippines, and, you know, three in the afternoon, man, my fingers are kind of limp. And I just said, hey, I got to stop. Why? Because as good as that ministry is and as fun as that ministry is and as helpful as that ministry is, I cannot be dealing with with 30 people one on one when I have a thousand people to deal with on Sunday morning. I cannot do it. So I have to just shut down. Those people are still alive, I think. Um, I just not answering their Bible questions anymore. And this is such a burden when, when you're in the ministry. And I know you know this because you have your own ministry. You have your own spiritual gift. You're teaching your own Sunday school or folding your own bulletins or setting up your own coffee table or whatever your ministry is in the church. You know that you have to get ready and you have to do that. But you also have to, you know, laundry to do and children to feed and houses to clean and bills to pay and jobs to work in. We all have to do all of those necessary things, you know, sleep, things like that. And then you have to do your ministry. And sometimes, yes, people want you to go to, you know, the green bean bake-a-thon or they want you to go to, you know, the craft symposium or, you know, they want you to go to the home and garden show or they want you to come to their little, you know, going away thing or their birthday party or whatever. And you want to go to every one of them. But there comes a time when you have to say no. Why? Because you have to Do your ministry with excellence. And the only way you can do that is say no to some so you can reach greater numbers. And that's what we see Jesus telling them here. Listen, go against the cultural customs. Don't stop and chit chat with everybody along the way. Just say, I sorry, I have to go. Yes, they may be offended. Yes, it may be uncomfortable to you. But just do this because this is urgent. I'm going to die. And so it's time to get out there and tell people about Jesus. You're not going to have miraculous powers forever. This is a rare occurrence. So get into the dense populated areas, do the miracles, preach the gospel, move on. Eight, provide a blessing to those who provide for you. Look at verse five. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Now, if you've ever gone to Israel, um, you probably, and maybe you know somebody who's um, come over from there. And one of the common things that happens when you enter their house or when you leave is peace, you know, shalom, they tell you, peace be to you. It's just common. It's a common greeting. Um, It's just what we see all over the Bible. Uh, Jesus, you know, when he appeared after his resurrection, remember when he appeared in the room with the disciples, do you remember what he said? Peace be to you. It's just standard, standard Jewish thing. But here we're having something a little bit more than just a general cultural greeting. When the 70 went out and they said, peace be to this house, they were not just saying, you know what, I'm just giving you the standard um, cultural greeting. They were actually bringing an offer of peace. Now, Who are they needing to be at peace with? God. God. Isaiah 48, 22 says, there is no peace for the wicked. And so when they came to a house and they said, peace be to you, 
If those people were willing to receive them and hear their message, they would be reconciled to the God of peace. They were offering them salvation. They were preaching the gospel of peace. That's what Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 6. Shod your feet with what? The gospel of peace. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. I mean, think about that. This is what's so cool about being a Christian. You can bring peace to somebody. You can be an ambassador for Christ and reconcile men to God through the blood of Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. And just think about this. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about his deity. And then he says this. Verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Speaking of Jesus. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And you and I are the agents of that. Jesus did the work, and then we bring men to be reconciled to God, to have peace with their Creator through Christ. Oh, that is such an awesome privilege. And so when you share the gospel, you're basically saying, here is how you can know your Creator and be reconciled with Him, because now you're hostile to Him, as Paul says in Romans 8. Look at verse 6. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If they receive you, if they hear your message, if they receive Jesus, they will actually be receiving the very peace that God offers through salvation. Look again in the middle of verse 6. But if not, it will return to you. If not what? If they don't want to receive you, if they don't want to provide for you, if they don't want to hear your message, if they don't want to believe the miracles you do are from God, if they don't want that then that peace with God you offer them will return to you, but not to them. You know, I think one of the hardest things when you're sharing the gospel is when people reject the truth, especially if they seem interested and you're kind of getting your hopes up. You know, they kind of say, well, you know, we're really interested in, in uh, you know, in talking to you about this. And you're thinking, oh, oh God's trying them. And so, you know, you sit down and you're, you're telling them and your heart's beating and you're trying to tell them all the things you know about Jesus and what God has done in your life. And you just need to believe and this is what Jesus did. And you tell them all that. And then they go, ah, no, it's not for me. And then you kind of just feel like a tire with the air let out. It's sad. They don't want it. But you know what? You need to remember that only God can save somebody. He saves them, yes, through you as you are faithful to tell people the gospel message. But he saves them. He opens their heart. 
He grants them repentance. He gives them faith. He does it. And so you have to pass by some to reach greater numbers. You have to provide a blessing of peace on those who will hear the gospel of peace so that they can be reconciled to God. And if they don't want to hear it, you just let it return to you and move on. Nine, peacefully be content. Look at verse seven. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. Now, why would Jesus say this? Well, this is why. If you ever look at a map about uh, during that time between southern Galilee and north of Jerusalem, what do you have in there? You know, you have Samaria. And then the other side, a bunch of Gentiles. The other side of the Jordan. Jesus knows he's going to be sending them out into a bunch of unclean, non-kosher areas. And you know, when you've grown up never eating anything that's not kosher, it's pretty painful to sit down to fried snake, to a ham sandwich. And Jesus knows this, and we begin to see him setting aside the dietary laws, which he does more and more, and then in the New Testament very clearly, as we see it in Peter and other places. But he's saying, listen, you go there, they receive you, you tell them the gospel, you do your miracles, and then you eat whatever they give you. In other words, be content with what they give you. Don't worry about dietary laws. Don't worry about the clean and the unclean here. Men's souls are at stake and I'm coming after you. Don't say, you know, could you, you know, could you go find us something? None of that. None of that. You just eat whatever they give you. And you know, when you begin to share the gospel, you're going to encounter situations that are less than comfortable for you. Sometimes you just, you want to share the gospel with that person, but just, they have the foulest mouth. You just want to like walk away. Well, they have a foul mouth because they need Jesus. You know, they have spiked hair. They look scary and big nose rings and things, you know, that you maybe you're just, you just kind of feel uncomfortable. The big tattoos of monsters on their arm. I don't know. Giant arms with tattoos. Now the guy's going to kill me. You know, if this doesn't work, he's going to kill me. So you have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to sometimes just be content with things that are uncomfortable for you. I went to Russia. I ate with this big family. It was a big privilege. They were having this birthday party. And so I'm there with a couple of missionaries. And I said, oh, this is huge, man, because, you know, the Russians are tight and we get to go to this family. And so they sit me down next to the patriarch of this family, who's his, you know, grandpa. And um, so I can't speak Russian and he can't speak English, but uh, he, he gets this little dish. It's not, there's not very much, but he gets it. And I'm wondering why there isn't more, but he slides it over in front of me. And in this dish is kind of some translucent, smelly, raw fish fillets soaked in some sort of brine. And uh, he kind of does the. Mm. And though I don't speak Russian, I know what he's talking about. He's saying, have some fish. 
So I got the big slab and put it on my plate. And I decided, you know, I just need to get this over with so I can enjoy dinner. So I hacked it in two, popped in the first half, and down it went, got the other one and put it in. And he's looking at me and he's smiling. There you go. Oh, he gets more and puts it on my plate. And then everybody at the table is kind of giggling because none of the other Russians would eat that. Only grandpa did. Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 10, 24 and 26. He said, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Listen, when it comes down to either you and your dietary preferences or the salvation of a soul, guess what God wants you to worry about? He says, eat anything that is sold in the market, the meat market, without asking questions for conscience sake. In other words, if you find out a sacrifice to idol, you might not be able to get it down. So don't even ask. For the earth is the Lord and all it contains. You just eat it. You eat the fried snake and the raw squid and the monkey brain. Why? Because it's more important to reach souls for Christ. And Jesus says, when I send you out, you're going to go into some scary places. Some of these cities I'm saying are Gentile cities. They're going to put things in front of you that you have never eaten, would never eat. Just keep your mouth shut and eat it. Now, what's interesting is, is when we go out and we're doing gospel ministries, and a lot of times, you know, people will be kind to us. They may give us things. And you kind of feel beholden, don't you? You kind of think, man, you know, they're, they're being so nice to me. You know, I just, mm, mm, you find I feel guilty. Well, stop. Because notice what Jesus says. Look at the middle of verse 7. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. What does that tell you? They owe you. They owe you. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9? Listen, if we sowed spiritual things among you, is it such a small thing that we reap material things from you? You know, some carpenter come over to your house and do some work, some plumber, some electrician, and you pay them. Do they kind of feel guilty? I'm so sorry you paid me. No, you owe them. And that's his whole point here. Listen, when you go out and you're doing miracles and you're healing people and you're preaching the gospel of the kingdom, don't feel all guilty and beholden that they're giving you a little food. You're offering them salvation. They're trying to save their soul. You're working for them. They owe you. The Labor is worthy of his wages. That same phrase appears in Matthew 10.10, 10, 1 Corinthians 9.14, and 1 Timothy 5.18. And in every instance, and our text, it is always used of supporting those who are doing the gospel ministry. Jesus wanted the disciples to know that God, through his providence, was going to provide for them. And that when they had somebody provide for them, don't think, oh, this is not good. I don't want to be beholden. No, if you're in that house and you're telling them the truth... Praise God. Let them pay you your wage. Now, is that how we should do it now? Should we go into an unevangelized area? Should we preach the gospel and expect those unbelievers to take care of us? No. Things have changed. Turn over to Luke chapter 22. 22. Luke 22, verse 35 through 38. The principle that God provides is still true. He just provides through a different way. This was a unique situation where Jesus promised to provide for the 70 
as they went about doing miracles and preaching the gospel. And here in Luke chapter 22, verses 35 through 38, he addresses it again. Peter has just boasted that I will never deny you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And then look at what he says in verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out without a money belt and a bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has, a, has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one for protection. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Jesus' whole purpose here is, listen, things have changed now. I'm going. I'm going to be numbered with transgressors. I'm going to die. I'm going to leave you. So, get your knapsack, get your money, get your provisions, your extra pair of sandals. Make sure you have something to protect yourself. And then get out there and preach the gospel. We know from the New Testament that the church is to support those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so now mostly the church does it. Other believers support other believers to evangelize. Then the church was so small that God through his providence was providing for them. Paul was a tent maker. He did his own thing. I mean, it's hard to go into a town and say, hey, provide for me so I can preach the gospel so you can save me. You know, I, God can save you through me. That that was unique to that time. Now Jesus says, take your provisions. Look at the end of verse 7. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Notice Jesus says it a second time. Eat what is set before you. You know they're going to have a problem with those ham sandwiches. <laughs> you know that they're just uh, fried worms and monkey brain casserole just is not going to go down. But Jesus says, you eat what is set before you. And if the food's bad, don't go to another house. Because you know what would happen. They'd get somebody to receive them, somebody they could share the gospel with, somebody to let them have a base of ministry operations. And Jesus goes, don't go looking for the Jew down the road. Don't go looking for the rich man's house. Don't go looking for the other guy's house who's you know got a little better grub. Just stay in that place and eat it. Eat what they give you. You know, there's many people in the ministry who are always looking for a better pay and a higher salary and a nicer place to live. They're always trying to leverage their ministry and go from their two years in this church and two years in that church and two years in another church trying to find what? Are they thinking about other people? No, they're thinking about themselves. And so for the sake of preaching the gospel, you have to put up a lot of times with things that are not comfortable and not for your preference, but the salvation of souls is worth it. 10, proclaim the gospel by using your resources from God. Look at verse 9, Jesus says, and heal those who are sick. Now just stop there. This tells us that Jesus, just like the 12, gave them power to heal the sick. That's kind of cool. I mean, I wish some of you had that power. I'd almost, you know, if somebody said, Jack, would you like to have that power? I don't know. 
you know what would happen. The word would get out. The whole world would know. And everybody's son and daughter and nephew and niece from around the world who had any sort of sick or ailing or person with cancer, they'd all come to you all wanting a healing. And could you imagine the burden that would be? The neat thing is they're going to a lot of small towns and villages where there wouldn't be that many people. They could stand there. They could stand in the street and say, come, come. If you have anybody who's sick, come. And people go, what do you mean sick? You know, I got my, you know, my back here. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, in the name of the Lord Jesus, you're healed. Say, I'm better. And then comes the guy, I, you know, cut off my finger, you know, chopping down a tree and fix. Ah, pretty soon news gets out. Everybody brings everybody who's sick and they just heal everybody. And they say, and we have a message from God. Well, no kidding. Because now the miracles have authenticated the messenger. Now, it would be great if God was still doing this now, but he hasn't left us without any power. We have learned In previous sermons, I think if you listen to the sermon miracles then and now or the purpose of signs and wonders sermons, um, you can see why God did this. Basically, he did miracles for a specific time among specific people in a specific place while the New Testament, while revolution, revelation was being given. And it was only for that time. And then now that we have the New Testament, we have the word which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The gospel now, the New Testament scriptures are God's power to bring people, to convince them when nothing else will. And so you have gifts. They may not be gifts of healing, but you have gifts. And you know what? You may not even have gifts that make you a preacher or a teacher, but you can still share the gospel one-on-one and you can still fulfill your place in the body of Christ to enable me to do what I do. And other people have gifts to do what they do. See, that's what's cool about the body. We're all one in Christ. And so when everybody chips in and everybody does their little part, whatever little part that is, we all work together to preach the gospel. I'm just the mouth. But you know, if your mouth isn't connected to the rest of your body, it's not much good. And that's how Paul describes, we are those who are armed with the gospel of God. And each of us can share the gospel individually with those we know. And each of us can be a part of the corporate body and the proclamation of the gospel too. Look at the middle of verse 9. You say to them, To them who receive you, to them that you heal, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Why is that? Why would they say that? Does that mean Jesus is about ready to come at a second coming? He hasn't even died yet. Well, because the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the Messiah, would be characterized by the healing of the nations, people being healed, people being restored, the light of the truth, the gospel would be presented to them. And Jesus is coming after. So listen, when you have the power of God working miracles, and you have the messenger God playing the, proclaiming the truth of the Messiah, and you have the Messiah your, himself there coming through your town, you can't get much closer to the kingdom of God. It's about as close as you can get without being actually in the kingdom. And if you believe, you become a kingdom saint. And so, yeah, 
The kingdom of God had come near them through the miracles, through the proclamation of the truth, and through the Messiah who had come after them. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 talks about the people who walk in darkness would see a great light. And that's what you get to do, and that's what I get to do. You know, would you say our world is kind of a dark place? Entrenched in sin, lots of immorality, lots of ungodliness, lots of wickedness. Sure, we all know that. Well, you are the one who can bring a great light into that world and shine it on people. Some will get mad, some won't want to hear it, but some will come to repentance and faith. And that's why we're all here. Because God has either drawn us to saving faith or maybe he's drawing some of you today. And you're thinking about Christianity. You're thinking about giving your life to Christ. Calvary Bible Church can be used as a light, not only to Burbank, but around the world. And we're doing that. We're doing that through our web ministries. We're doing that through short-term mission. We're doing that through supporting other missionaries. We're, we're making a statement. We're being a light. 11. Publicly protest those who will not receive your message. This is very interesting. Look at verse 10. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its street and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Now we saw this in Luke chapter 9, verse 5. Same thing he told the 12. You go in that city, you heal all of their sick, you start preaching the truth and they say, nah, nah, we aren't going to believe in this Jesus guy. We've heard stories about him. Then what, you, what are you to do? Notice what he says. Go out into its streets. That is, get into a public pray, place where everybody in that city can see you. Pop off a sandal, stand there on one foot, and wipe off, knock off the dust and get it off of there. Symbolically say to them, listen, because you will not receive Jesus, you will not receive the Father, you will not receive your salvation, and so we don't even want to take a speck of dust with us from this place. That's a scary statement because the kingdom of God has come near to you and you will not have it. Paul did the same thing in Acts 13, 50 and 51. He shook the dust off his feet when they would not hear the gospel preached. Look at the middle of verse 11. They were to say of this, behold, uh, be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. They were to hear that. They were to know that the kingdom of God came near. Oh, so near. Their salvation was basically handed to them. Here is a gift of eternal life. Here, here, take it. And they would not have it. They would not be saved. They wouldn't believe. You know, no matter what you do or how you present the truth, some people just don't want to hear the gospel and they reject it. They don't want to hear the truth. And so what's interesting here and what this teaches us is when they get to that place, before you leave them alone, just end with one warning. I have just offered you salvation and before God, you are rejecting it. And then you move on. Now, what's neat about this is God uses things like this. Sometimes the offer of free grace and salvation, the love of God, Christ dying for sinners just doesn't work on some people. So you just give them a little warning and then you leave. 
And then you leave and they start thinking, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. I've talked to people who said, oh, after I heard the gospel, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. God just started working on my heart. And I, I became so terrified of dying. I couldn't handle it. I just thought, if I die in a car accident, if some psycho pulls over here, some drunk person, if some wheel falls off and you know kills me, I'm going to go to hell. We've had people just pull off the side of the road and give their life to Christ. It just took a little while for the word to start working in their heart and they start getting convicted and they start getting scared because they realized that judgment has almost come upon them and they're fearful because they know they can die at any time. There's this little technique that you use when you're fly fishing. We used to fish with streamers, certain kind of flies for these big lunker trout in the bottom of this one river. We would uh, cast out into the river and let the fly swing downstream. And all of a sudden, a lot of times you could see these big bull trout just following the streamer. And if you just let it there, they would never bite it. But if you pulled it away, they jumped on it. That was the secret of getting them. You, you just kind of bring it by them. It's like, ah, I don't want that. And all of a sudden it's like, it's getting away. <clears throat> and that's how some people respond to the gospel. You present the gospel. It's like, ah, nah, I don't want to hear it. I don't want your religion. It's like, quit trying to cram religion down my throat. There's, what about the natives in Africa? And so you say, okay. And you, it's like, wait. And this was what was happening. They would come to a city, they'd do the miracles, they'd preach the gospel, someone would reject, and they'd say later, and they'd walk away, and then they'd be all tormented. And who was coming next? Jesus. And a lot of those people would be ready to hear it a second time. Twelve. There's judgment pronounced on those who will not repent. The pronouncing of judgment. Look at verse 12. I say to you, Notice that Jesus has now stopped telling the disciples what they are to tell the people. And he is now telling the disciples, making a commentary on those who will not repent. And notice what he says. It will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Now, if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that is a scary statement. Sodom and Gomorrah. And the cities of the plain were those cities that were down in what is called the Jordan Rift, the valley where the Jordan River flows and dumps into the Dead Sea. Genesis 18.20 says, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. That was God's commentary. They were immoral, wicked, adulterous, immoral, homosexual society. And God says their sin is extremely grave. And if you know the story, God sent a couple angels down there to rescue Lot and his family. Lot couldn't convince anybody to leave but his wife and two daughters. God said, don't look back. The next morning they're fleeing out of the city. And the text says, God rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. What is that? 
Brimstone is molten sulfur, sulfur that's been ignited on fire and is kind of in a kind of a, a hard in the inside, gooey and on fire on the outside. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a hailstorm. If you've been in a hailstorm, even hail the size of peas hurt when they hit you. But here they would experience pea size and larger chunks of molten burning sulfur. And God would rain that down upon them. And of course, people, when it strike, you'd have the initial pain of the impact. Then when it hit, it would explode and you'd have fire. And if you tried to wipe it off, you'd spread the fire. You'd run into your house. And then what would happen? Then your roof would catch on fire. And pretty soon smoke would start filling your abode. And outside the ground would just be being pelted and pelted with fire and brimstone. And sulfur smoke would just be creeping through the sound. And people would run outside screaming and yelling and their hair on fire. And pretty soon they'd hit the ground breathing in all those noxious fumes. And they would die this terrible, agonizing, burning death. And then soon every animal, every beast, every bird, every bug would be just totally exterminated from Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. And Jesus says, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom than for those who reject the gospel attested by those miracles. Whoa. You see, nobody went through Sodom and Gomorrah And did any miracles and preached the gospel. They didn't get any warning. God just judged them. Now if you're out there and you're thinking. Oh Jack I'm so glad you don't do miracles. (laughs) You know. What this text tells us. Along with other texts in the Bible. Is that there are greater degrees of punishment in hell. Think about that. Some people have this idea, well, you know, if I'm not going to go to heaven, I'm going to go party in hell. No, there's no going to be no partying. You know, if I'm not going to go to heaven, I might as well sin all I want. There's greater degrees of punishment. Thomas Watson, in his work, The Mischief of Sin, in a chapter entitled Hell's Furnace Heated Hotter, said, the coolest part of hell is hot enough, but there are some who shall have a hotter place in hell than others and shall go into that fiery prison. But some sinners God will thrust into the dungeon, end quote. Jesus, when speaking of this in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48 says, and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they have entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Notice there, the more revelation you are given, the more opportunities to hear the gospel, the greater your judgment will be if you reject it. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10, 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? How much severe punishment in hell? And if you're out there thinking, Jack, I'm glad you don't do miracles, I have news for you. Something greater than miracles is here. And it's probably sitting in your lap right now. Or maybe just a few inches past your knee in the pew back behind you. It's called a Bible. 
Something the people of Sodom and Gomorrah never had. Something the people of the cities that Jesus sent the 70 out to preach never had. We have the full revelation of God with all the great miracles God ever did in it. And how much severe punishment do you think those will deserve who have come to Bible teaching churches, heard the gospel Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and then left never having repented? I mean, you will be thrust down into the very depth of hell if you know the truth and you know it well and you have a Bible and you die unrepentant. The warning here is serious and I hate to tell you next week it's going to be worse. I'm already loathing next week. I do not like preaching texts that we are going to look at next week. I'm telling you, do not leave here having rejected Christ. When you have the truth and you hear the gospel and you go to a Bible preaching church and you think, oh, I'll repent some other day. I'll give my life to Christ. I know I just love my sin. Who would be so foolish to trade a drop of sin for a sea of wrath? Who would do that? When right now, Jesus crucified is saying, come to me, all you are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will save you. I will change you. I will transform you. I will forgive you. I will reconcile you to God. Just believe in me. And then if you reject that, it will be worse for you than Sodom and worse for you than the people that the 70 went out and preached to. I'll tell you that. Because you have way more revelation to whom much is given, much is required. And so may we all be motivated to share the gospel because of this. If you haven't repented, may you be motivated to do it now. And not wait. And not think, oh, I'm too great of a sinner. Believe me, your sin is no greater than God's grace. Yeah, but, you know, you just don't know what I've done. No, but God does. And Christ's sacrifice is perfect and infinite and can save any sinner. And so don't ever think that you can just leave here and repent tomorrow because tomorrow may never come for you. You need to run to Christ now. He will save you. He will either be Lord and master and savior of your life now, or he will be your judge for all eternity. So pass by some to reach greater numbers. Provide a blessing of peace by preaching the gospel of peace to those who will listen. Peacefully be content with the Lord and his provisions for you as you labor in the ministry. Proclaim the gospel while using your spiritual gifts and resources. Protest those who reject the kingdom of God And pronounce judgment on those who will not repent. Because it's coming. It's true. Warn them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. And even though it's very sobering at the end, yet the message is still true. You have sent your son to save sinners from the wrath to come. And even though the wrath is scary and the judgment is sure for those who will not repent, yet salvation is equally sure. For those who will. Father I pray for those here this morning. Who in their hearts. Are battling. You. Who maybe call themselves Christians. And maybe are even members of this church. People who. Have maybe. 
come to church for many years, but they know in their heart they don't love you. They know they love their sin more. And they're willing to only give you lip service and a few crumbs of their life. Father, may they repent now. Grant them repentance. Save them as only you can. For the rest of us, may we take the principles we have learned from Jesus in this text. May we apply them as we go out into the world and the highways and byways. And Father, be a witness for you in what we say and what we do. That you might save some, bring many to glory, and give yourself glory in doing that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.